Well, this morning's message, the title of the morning's message is To Find Wisdom is to Find Christ. And our passage is Proverbs 8, which Sherry just read for us this morning. Let me pray. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us through His Word. Father, we thank You for what You have given to us in this Word, Your Word. Thank You that every Sunday we get to corporately gather together and to hear it knowing that, Lord, You are speaking to Your people. As this text is even telling us, You are calling out to us. And Lord, it's an amazing thing. What does it mean to see You as Isaiah saw You? Well, for us, it means to to see You through Your Word as You've revealed Yourself to us fully. What, What He saw, we see by coming to this book and knowing that we're not just coming to a book, but we're coming to a living God who reveals Himself through a living Word. So Lord, we ask that You would do that work in us, Lord. Draw our hearts to You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing on in our Summer Proverbs series and we're, we're kind of... Uh, still laying a foundation for where we're going to go. I'll explain that a little bit more as, as we go further on here this morning. But these first four uh, messages that, we've, that we're looking at here in, in Proverbs are really foundational. Uh, Proverbs is a very practical book, and we're going to be learning lots of practical ways in which we can be guided by the wisdom of God. But the foundation that has to be laid is so important because if we don't understand just what is the wisdom of God, who is the wisdom of God, will not be able to carry out any of the practical things. We do all things through Christ, right? And that's where we're going to be pointed to this morning. To find wisdom is to find Christ. That is the foundational understanding that, this, that Solomon is really pointing us to and that we have to grasp if we're going to have any success in obtaining wisdom. Last week's sermon, there were a few things that I said that were that were paraphrased on the Twitter feed of the C.S. Lewis Institute. And I got a notification, you know, when, when somebody tags you in, on Twitter, you get notifications, right? So I get tagged eh, four, maybe four or five different times last Sunday, just things that were said that were, that were retweeted on that particular feed. And I got another notification of a reply that someone posted to one of those tweets. And I want to put it up here on the screen for you. Here's, here's what was paraphrased from the sermon last week. Are we realizing the fullness of life in Christ by guarding His commandments? That was something that I had said as we're looking at the first verses of Proverbs chapter 3, which talk about having fullness of life and listening to the commandments that were, that were being uh, given here. And, I, and I, I pointed to the fact that that fullness of life is the life that we have in Christ. Are we experiencing that by listening to Him? And this response was this. Proverbs 3, 1-4 through has nothing to do with the fullness of life in Christ. All of Jesus' commandments are found in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Let's not confuse the writer of the Old Testament with the commandments of Jesus. So I, I saw that, and, I, and my heart kind of sunk as I, as I saw that. I thought, oh man, what a sad perspective. And I understand if, if what he's trying to say is, you know, let's not find Jesus under every single verse in the Bible. I mean, that, that's fine. But I explored this particular person's Twitter feed and, and found that, no, this person's bent is that the Old Testament is essentially uh, not to be looked at for Christians. And so that, that was kind of the heart behind his, this post. And here's the thing. I couldn't disagree with that response more. I couldn't disagree with that response more. Proverbs 3, 1-4 has nothing to do with fullness of life in Christ. I didn't respond to this Twitter user. I was actually mindful of Proverbs 26-4. <laughs> Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. That, that, there's, a, there's a perfect breeding ground for that kind of folly on social media. right? So I didn't respond to it. But if I had... I would have said something like this. I would have said, nothing? 
has nothing to do with fullness of life in Christ? What do all of the Old Testament promises and commands point us to, if not to the need for a Savior who is Jesus? Or I might have said this, where do the Old Testament commands come from, if not from the eternal Word of God who is Jesus? Or I might have asked, are you suggesting that the Bible is telling us that there is the possibility of fullness of life in anyone or anything other than Jesus? So the fact of the matter is, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and all of it points to Jesus Christ. And our passage today here in Proverbs 8 demonstrates this fact. In it, Solomon uses a literary device. He uses personification here to present wisdom to us, this is interesting, as a pre-existent female voice who co-creates the universe with God and who cries out to mankind to listen to her counsel. And so what I'm suggesting today, because I think the text clearly suggests this, is that this lady wisdom, as we'll refer to her, this lady wisdom is an Old Testament picture of the Son of God who is Jesus Christ. Now when I say that, you might go, wait, did you just say Jesus is a lady? No, I didn't say that, but I am saying that we shouldn't think of God as a man either. I think it's appropriate for us to use male terminology when we refer to God and as, because that's how God is revealed himself to us most commonly in the Bible, right? He refers to himself as a father. He refers to himself as son. Of course, when Jesus took on flesh and came to us, he was embodied as a man, right? So it's appropriate for us to, to use male terminology when referring to God. However, we have to remember that God is spirit. God is not male or female, and that when he created human beings in his image, he says he created them male and female in the image of God, he created them, right? So in other words, who God is, who God is, is reflected both in male and female likeness in humankind, okay? So here in Proverbs 8, among other passages of the Bible, God is referring to himself using female personification. He does that in Isaiah as well. He talks about himself. He, 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 he um, demonstrates his love towards us as, as motherly, right? So this isn't the only place that he does that, but he's certainly doing it here. And so this lady wisdom that we're reading here from in Proverbs 8, as we'll see, is really embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the, the main idea of this passage is this, to find wisdom, personified here as lady wisdom, to find wisdom is to find Christ. There's this progression, this foundation that Solomon here is laying in Proverbs. And remember where we started, he says, he says fear the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then he, he tells us to pursue this wisdom. He tells us then to trust in this wisdom. And now he's telling us to find this wisdom all in Christ before we get to all the practical applications. And we're going to do that beginning in next week. We're going to start looking at what does Proverbs has to say about the way we use our speech? What does it say about our decision making? What does it say about our finances? What does it say about all these things that are practical realities in our daily life? But he starts off with this foundation saying, first, we have to understand that we have to fear the Lord. We have to pursue Him. We have to trust Him. And we have to find Him in Christ. Proverbs 8 here finds its high point in verses 22 to 31. If you look down there, you'll see that it's in those verses, 22 to 31, where the doctrine of creation is referenced. And it's here that wisdom is identified. So what I want to do this morning is I want to start with that section of the proverb here. 
and then work out from this high point to seek after our application of the rest of the chapter. So I know Sherry just read it, but let's look down at it again. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. Wisdom is saying this, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work. The first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up. At the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before He had made the earth with its fields, or the the first of the dust of the world. When He established the heavens, I was there. When He drew a circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, when He established the fountains of the deep, when He assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside Him like a master workman. And I was daily His delight, rejoicing before Him always, rejoicing in His inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. The first point, the sort of the high point here of this text is this First point of the sermon this morning, if you're taking notes, and it's this. Christ is the embodiment of wisdom. He is the creative source of the universe. We look at this text, this passage here in the, in the middle of this proverb, this creation account. King Solomon is clearly pointing us back to Genesis chapter 1. Right? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that's what we're seeing here being laid out in Proverbs 8 as well. But he's also doing something that we don't see in Genesis 1. He's giving us a behind-the-scenes glimpse into what it was like before creation. He's giving us this behind-the-scenes glimpse into the state of ultimate reality before the first creative acts were ever performed here in verse 23. And what wisdom is saying to us is, look, I pre-existed everything. I pre-existed everything. When everything was still void, when everything was still without form, I was already there. Wisdom is saying to us, it was me who, like a a master craftsman in verse 30, co-created all of this with the Father. Now it gets really interesting when you take verses 22 to 24 together with verses 30 to 31. Wisdom is saying in 20 to 24, he's saying, I was possessed by the Lord, right? He says, I was brought forth by the Lord, which sounds like wisdom is saying, I am this exercised attribute of God, right? But then when we see in verse 30 to 31, wisdom says, I was beside him, Wisdom says here, I rejoiced before him. We go, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like an attribute, right? Attributes aren't beside someone. Attributes don't rejoice. This is the language of personhood. So wisdom is saying that she is somehow both an attribute of who God is and a person who is also who God is at the same time. So how do we resolve that? How do we understand who wisdom, the attribute, is as a person? Well, the Apostle John figured it out. And he clearly thought that this idea was so important that he began his gospel account. He introduces Jesus to us by by pointing back to the same idea, this doctrine of creation, to explain the connection. Look up on the screen here. Let me put up the beginning of John chapter 1. In the beginning, he says, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now here's what you need to know about John and his writing here. He was originally writing to a first century audience that was made up of both Jewish and Gentile folks. And he's writing this in Greek because everybody understands Greek. All right, And we already know that the opening here to John's passage sounds very familiar. It sounds like Genesis 1. It sounds like Proverbs 8. And that was, of course, intentional on his part. He's, he's evoking that same language, those same ideas. But he does something a little different here. He uses a word that's new to us. He uses a word here in Greek 
Lagos. He says, in the beginning was the Lagos. That word, word, in Greek is Lagos. Now why? Why does he use that word? Well, for the Greek speaker, the idea of Lagos had, had rich meaning. It was understood to be this, and I'm, I'm quoting a first century writer here. It was the, the divine bond of everything. Lagos is that which, which holds all things together. It binds all the parts together and prevents them from being dissolved and separated. All right? Now, those are actually the words of the Alexandrian philosopher Philo. And Philo was a, a contemporary of John. He's writing here at the same time. And Philo, this kind of thinking about Lagos as this bond that holds everything together, was very influential in forming that concept in the minds of first century people. So everybody kind of understood this concept of Lagos to be this transcendent thing that holds it all together. So if you're a Jew in the first century, this idea of Lagos, this Greek idea, was very closely tied with your understanding of the word wisdom. The word wisdom in Greek is Sophia, which by the way is a feminine, right? It's like we use that as a name, right? And, and that, that, that goes back here to Proverbs chapter 8. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses that word Sophia here in Proverbs 8. And they, they put those two ideas, Lagos and Sophia, Lagos and wisdom together because their idea of this divine bond that holds everything together was highly shaped by their understanding of this text, Proverbs chapter 8. So wisdom and Sophia and this word, word, the Lagos, were almost interchangeable ideas. So when John is writing here, this is, this is really interesting stuff here. He's, he's making a connection then for all of his readers. If you're a Jew, if you're a Gentile, if you're Greek, John 1, 1 through 3 is worded very similarly, again, to Genesis 1 and Proverbs 8, so that the Jewish readers would understand that he's definitely talking here about this pre-existent person. This pre-existent attribute slash person that they know already to be Lady Wisdom. But he uses the word Logos here in part to help his Greek readers see that their concept of the Logos has a name. That it's a person. And this person is found in the biblical God who is not only a person, but who also became a human being. John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, and the the word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says of this Logos, for from His fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. This grace and truth came through. And here's, he, here's the name that he's now giving of the Logos. Here's his name. It came through Jesus Christ. So do you see what he's doing here? John's saying, yeah, there's a bond that holds all things together. This Logos idea. And, and this Logos is, is pre-existent. And this Logos was not only with God at the beginning, before things were created, but also is God. This Logos is not something that's outside of God, but something that is within him. Wisdom, or logos, he's saying, is not a created thing. It was brought forth at the beginning. But it wasn't created. It was brought forth like it was begotten, not created. And it was also beside God, which again is pointing us to a person who is both God and with God. It's pointing us to the second person of the Trinity. This wisdom, he says, has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ. And then he says this, verse 18. He says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And I think what John is doing here in chapter 1 of his Gospel is he's giving another nod to Proverbs chapter 8 in verse 30. Look back at verse 30. Wisdom is saying, Then I was beside him, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. John 1.18, this 
This wisdom, this logos, the only God who is at the Father's side. Just like it says here in Proverbs 8. And I think John also in John 17, when he, when he talks about in Jesus' prayer there, the love that the Son shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. I think that's again another nod here. I was daily His delight, rejoicing in Him always. Now think about that. All those connections. Isn't that cool? Right? You, you approach your, your, your Bible and you say, well, only, a God, only God, only a, a, a good and holy and, and wise and supreme God could inspire a Bible like this. We've got these passages that were written by different men over different centuries, and yet they're somehow beautifully woven together, and they find their culmination in Jesus. And so if, if, I, could, if I could have a conversation with this Twitter user or anyone else who's got that, that kind of a mindset, I would say, look, if you, if you fail to see Jesus in the Old Testament, you'll never understand or appreciate him in the New Testament. Because what, what he is in the New Testament is, 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 is all the culmination of what we're pointed to about him in the old. So again, the point of Proverbs 8 and the point of John 1 and the title of my sermon and the main idea is this, to find wisdom is to find Christ. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, whom shall we fear? If we're to pursue wisdom, if we're to seek it like treasure, whom shall we pursue? If we're to trust in wisdom with a, with a radical trust, like we saw last week in Proverbs 3, the question is, in whom shall we place our trust? And the answer to all those questions is, they point to Jesus. So the wise man or the wise woman, therefore, sees everything through that lens. We see all things through the lens of knowing that the wisdom of God, which creates all things, which holds all things together, is found when we look to Jesus. And Colossians chapter 1 sums this up so beautifully. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. All right, that was a pretty good little theology lesson. Let me bring this home. Why are we studying Proverbs? Why are we studying Proverbs? Practical reasons, practical answers, because we want to learn wisdom, right? We want to grow as people. We're looking for practical guidance in the things that we face every single day in our lives. We want guidance in our relationships. We want guidance in our decisions. We want guidance in our finances, our, our time management. We want, we want help in knowing what does it mean to, to pursue justice? What does it mean to pursue peace? What does it mean to choose right over wrong? Right? That's, these are the practical things that Proverbs has to say to us, and that's, that's why we're reading this book. And we're going to get these things as we continue on in the summer to read through it. But there's this critical foundation Solomon understands this and he wants us to understand it. There's a critical foundation that has to be laid first, and that's this. You can only successfully approach or successfully accomplish any of those things if you are first in Christ. You've got to be in Christ. If I want to have right relationships with others, first I've got to have a right relationship with Jesus. If I want to grow as a person, I have to have a healthy, reverent fear first of Jesus. I have to seek Jesus. I have to trust Jesus. I have to look to Jesus. If that's not my foundation, then what does it leave me with in Proverbs? It means this. It means otherwise, Proverbs is just moral teaching. Right? It's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. And when you have just a, a moral teaching or, or just a list of do's and don'ts, you have this problem. 
it will crush you when you fail. Or it will just puff you up with pride if you sometimes seem to succeed. But it's all in your own strength and your own power unless you are first in Christ. He's the source. If I want the good life, do you want the good life? I do. If I want the good life, I have to find life in Jesus. Everything else flows from this. Everything else is built upon this foundation, which I'm so thankful that for day camp this summer, they're, they're looking at that, that verse in Matthew 7, right? Everything starts there. It's built on the rock. That's the source of life. Solomon first points us to the doctrine of creation here to help us understand that this wisdom that we seek is really a transcendent wisdom. It's really a controlling wisdom. It controls everything. And we've got to tap into it. We've got to tap into a wisdom not from ourselves, but a wisdom that is from above. And in order to do that, we have to tap into the Logos Himself. Wisdom, Him Herself. Christ. Christ is the embodiment of wisdom. And so here in Proverbs 8, he finishes laying that foundation by reminding us of all of its layers. And the rest of the passage then that's sort of orbiting around this beautiful creation doctrine points us to these three really important things. This idea that Christ, who is the embodiment of wisdom, first of all, calls us. That's verses 1-11. through 11. Second of all, He establishes us. That's verses 12-21. to 21. And finally, He saves us. That's verses 32 to 36. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the foundation we've been looking at for the last three Sundays, right? He calls us. He establishes us. He saves us. It's Christ who's the embodiment of this wisdom. Now, we're going to spend just a few more minutes looking at those three ideas. I'll, I promise I'll go through them very quickly here. But I want to say this up front. Normally, when we think of those, those, those three concepts, He calls us, He establishes us, He saves us, we think about them in a spiritual way. right? That's the Gospel. right? Jesus calls us and, and, he, and he establishes us. right? He glorifies us, He sanctifies us, He saves us. We think about that in spiritual realities and they are that but i want us to see this because i think this is what solomon's getting at here in the text they're also present realities in the christian life this idea that he's calling us and he's establishing us and saving us is not just a spiritual reality but a practical reality every day in the christian life in other words the gospel has a full effect that is not just for eternity but for now and i think that's what he's getting at here Jesus is calling us all the time, he's saying. Jesus is establishing us daily, he's saying. And he continually is saving us as we find him in our everyday experience. So let's, let's just again quickly look at what Solomon says about this as he writes to his son. And the second idea here of the message there, this, this is the first of those three, but the second point of the message is that Christ, who is the embodiment of wisdom, calls out to those who will listen to him. Look back again at verses 1-4. to four. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gate, in front of the town, and at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the children of man. Wisdom calls calls out. Christ, who is the embodiment of wisdom, calls out to those who will listen to Him. There's a couple of really important and encouraging things said here. The first is that this voice of wisdom, this voice of Christ, calls out loudly to us. Calls out loudly to us. It says here, wisdom raises her voice. In other words, it's saying this, this way to the wisdom of God it's not hidden. It's not elusive. It's not hard to hear. If you're paying attention, it's everywhere. It's calling out at the gates. It's calling out in the courtyards. It's calling out on the streets. It's everywhere. If we're paying attention, this voice of wisdom, this voice of Christ is calling out to us loudly and everywhere. 
And I, and I think Solomon also wants us to see that this loud voice is also a beautiful and alluring voice. And I mean that in, in, a, in a very good way. It's in contrast, I think, to chapter 7, which we haven't looked at yet. But in chapter 7, it's, the voice that we're hearing is the voice of the adulterous woman. It's the voice of the seductress who calls out to do us harm. In fact, look up at, at chapter 7, verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Why does he follow after that voice that leads to destruction? Because that voice sounds really good. It's very alluring, right? It's very seductive. And here in contrast, Solomon wants you to understand that the voice of God is beautiful. We're so often carried off by what we see as these beautiful siren calls of the world, the siren calls of seduction. And Solomon wants us to understand, no, the voice of God is beauty. One's a deceptive beauty, the voice of the siren. God's is a, is a true beauty. It's a life-giving beauty. This wisdom of Christ is compelling. It's lovely. It's desirable. I think that's why he speaks this uses this use of personification as the voice of a lady. He's, he's writing here to his son, and he's having wisdom call out, and, and there's something compelling about the voice of a beautiful woman calling him, and that being the voice of God. The second thing to notice is that wisdom is not exclusive. See that in verse 5? Oh, simple ones, learn prudence. Oh, fools, learn sense. If we look at the voice of the seductress in chapter 7, she's calling out to simple ones in order to dupe them. Look at chapter 7, just real quickly, verse 7. I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youth, a young man who lacks sense. And to him I say, come over here, right? The Lord is saying, look, I look for the simple, but not to do them harm but to do them good, to teach them, and to grow them. It's not an exclusive wisdom. God isn't saying, this is for the elite among you. This is for the, the smart among you. God's saying, this is for the simple. I am calling to you. And how often do we willfully ignore the voice of God? How often do you willfully ignore the voice of God because you feel foolish? Do you ever do that? I do, Right? You feel like a fool. You, 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 you know your sin. You feel the weight. You're feeling guilty. You're feeling shame. And the voice of God is everywhere and it's around you. And you're kind of like, I can't, I can't go there. I can't. God doesn't want to see me right now. I am a fool. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I don't despise you. I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you. Come. Let me heal you. Let me grow you. Let me establish you. And these two simple commands that he gives here. The first one is, hear. Hear, verse 6. I will speak noble things. From my lips will come what is right. My mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips, but all the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They're all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Are you listening, he's saying? Right? He's been talking about that already in the, in the early chapters of Proverbs. Listen to me. Pay attention to me. My, my words, my ways, they'll point you to, in the straight path. Everything I have to say to you is right. Everything I have to say to you is noble. Are you listening? So hear me. And secondly, he says, then take. Proverbs chapter 2, we talked about that. Step into it, right? Take. Don't just listen. But take what I have to say. Verse 10. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. That's interesting because remember earlier in Proverbs he said, pursue this wisdom. Seek after it like its silver, like its treasure. And here he's saying, take it. It's not just like silver, it's better. I'm not like gold, I'm better. And again, we're going to all take 
something. He's saying, take from me. Take what I have to offer you. Christ, who is the embodiment of wisdom, is calling out all the time to those who are listening to him. Everything around us is pointing us to the wisdom of God. It's pointing us and calling us to Christ. Are we paying attention? The next thing is that Christ, who is the embodiment of wisdom, establishes those who will love him. Look at verse 20. I will walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. This is wisdom's voice again. I will walk in the way of those who love me. I will fill up their treasuries. What does that mean? I think it's important to say up front, this is not a prosperity gospel promise. Right? This is not follow me and you'll always have a full bank account. The Bible never promises that to anyone. And if we thought that it did, we'd all come to Jesus for the wrong reasons, right? We'd all come to him for very selfish reasons. But the promise here, and it is a promise, is better than that. It's far better than that. It means that no matter what, no matter what, you'll always have resources to draw upon. Hear me, take, I will establish you. You will always have resources to draw upon. You will have the inheritance of the Lord at your disposal. And what is that inheritance? We say, well, it's the future inheritance of heaven, right? Yes, it's that. But it's not just that. It's this. It is a realized trust fund of an established life. By realized trust fund, I mean you have this trust fund and it's not just something that's waiting for you in the future. You've come of age. In, in Christ, you have access to you can You can utilize those resources now. And that trust fund's value, its, it's treasury is filled with this idea of the established life. It's, it's freedom. It's the empowerment to live the life that God intended us to live. A life that, get this, allows you to, to lay your head down on your pillow at night without regret. A life that allows you to lay your head down on your pillow at night without shame. It's this promise. It's the power from God to become a good man or a good woman. Look at verse 14, because I think that's what he's saying here. I've got to flip back to it here. Verse 14. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. You know what I think he's saying there? I think he's saying there that if you want this, this, this resource to tap into, this, this resource to draw upon that will allow you to sleep at night, to allow you this sense of establishment, you got to recognize that all of those good things that make you a good person come from me. He talks about kings and princes here. And I know it's easy for us to think about kings and princes or presidents or prime ministers or those who are in power as being corrupt. right? Those who are in power of being kind of crooked and, and, and those that would do us harm. But he's pointing here to, to not that kind of a king or a prince, but a, but a benevolent king. A good one. You know, the, the, the greatest form of government that there is, we often think of it, well, it's democracy. It's a, no, the greatest form of government that there is is a benevolent monarchy. It's a benevolent king. And I say that with confidence because I know that's the form of government that we'll have for eternity in the kingdom of heaven, right? There's nothing better than to be in, in the, under the grace and under the care and under the rule of a benevolent king, a benevolent prince who rules with justice who rules with equity, who rules with righteousness, right? So he's saying if you've seen that, if you've seen a king like that, you've seen a prince like that, you've got to recognize that, that where that comes from, what makes them a good man, it's me. I'm the source of that goodness. That's the life that I give to those who are listening to me, who are following me. 
Not one of shame, not one of regret, one of benevolence and goodness and righteousness and justice. I'll make you established. And then again, I think it's about making right investments and having a right return on those investments. Verse 18, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. My yield than choice silver. What is he, what is he saying there? Well, again, remember what he's, he's writing to. This is Solomon. This is the richest man in the world. This is the most powerful man in the world. This is the wisest man in the world. And God has given him all of these gifts and said to him very carefully, don't put your trust in your money. Don't put your trust in your horses. Don't put your trust in your power. What does a bad king want to do with all that resource? Well, they're, they're going to use it for themselves, right? They're going, to, they're going to build bigger palaces for themselves. They're going to, you know, they're going to line their, their walls with gold plates. They're going to be very self-seeking. What do you do? What are you pursuing riches in this world for? You want a better car? You want, you want a, a bigger retirement fund? I mean, what, what is it that you're after in all of those things? Are you patting yourself? Or are you using what God is giving to invest? To recognize that, that to be a good steward of, of my wealth is not just to see what can I now buy for myself, but how can I use this to serve others, to bless others, to care for others, right? And when we do that, what do we find? When, when you're able to be generous with the things that God has given to you, you can rest at night. You can rest at night without regret, without shame, you can feel established because you know that you've been faithful as a steward of what God has given. When you use your resources to just kind of build yourself up and keep up with the Joneses, you never rest at night because you're always trying to keep up and it's crushing you. So what does it mean for him to say, I, I will establish you? It means that he'll give us an understanding that these resources that he's allowing us to tap into are resources that ultimately are for our good. It's not a prosperity gospel. And it's not even a promise that you'll always have material things. Instead, it's prudence in any circumstance. Verse 14, I have counsel. I have sound wisdom. I have insight. I have Strength. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, I'm, I've, I've understood what it means to be established. And I, I, I understand that it's the same thing whether I have a lot of stuff or whether I have nothing. And here it is. Here's the secret. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Verse 14, again, I have insight. I have strength. So when we see through the lens that honors and values Christ in everything, establishes us as we listen to him as he calls us and finally this promise christ who is the embodiment of wisdom saves those who will find him again i think this is not just a salvation promise in terms of our eternal state but i think it's a daily a daily realization of the newness of life of the salvation of god in christ Verse 32, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. He's repeating now kind of all that he said. And then he says this, For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. 
Just see a simple contrast there. The love of life versus the love of death. When you hear when I call, when you let me be the one who establishes your life, when you seek me as the one who is the source of life and salvation, life is offered to you. I am the life. But when we take from other sources, when we look to other things, when we look to be established on foundations that are sand and not rock, we point ourselves towards harm. We ultimately point ourselves towards death. He's saying, if you, if you love life, you find me. To find wisdom is to find Christ. I want to just close with this. I'm going to read to you a little passage from a book that I've, I've actually uh, showed this book to you guys a few weeks back. It's a book by, written by my mentor, Tim Savage. In fact, I love the title. The title of the book is Discovering the Good Life, which is what we've been talking about here in Proverbs, right? What is this life that he promises? What is the good life? Listen to what he says here. And again, we're thinking about this idea of the salvation of God that, that points us to life rather than death. He says this. He says, In the middle of a large wall at the Art Institute of Chicago, there hangs a small painting It's a 16 by 13 inch self-portrait of Vincent Van Gogh. Twice I've stood in front of the canvas and each time I've been chilled to the bone. No matter from which angle I view the painting, whether from up close or from 20 feet away, whether from one side or the other, I always feel as though Van Gogh is looking right through me. His eyes, hollow, weary, and anguished, follow me wherever I go and they bore into my heart. If the whole life of a person can be seen in the eyes, then Van Gogh must have lived a tortured existence. Indeed, as a young man, Van Gogh was estranged from his father. He married a prostitute. He took up painting but sold only one work during his lifetime, and that for a pittance. He suffered from severe depression and mental instability. Two days before Christmas in 1888, he sliced off the lower lobe of his left ear and presented it as a gift at a brothel. Van Gogh painted over 30 self-portraits. They were, I believe, his way of crying out for help. In Gallery 241, that cry is palpable. Looking into his eyes, I feel him asking, why didn't you tell me? A lump forms in my throat and blood rushes to my face. Then the question sharpens, why didn't you tell me about life? About how good life can be? And a whisper forms on my lips. Please forgive me. I'm so sorry. Suddenly the clamor of school children brings me to my senses. How silly of me to be talking to a portrait 150 years old. No, he says, not silly. Today there are Vincent Van Goghs all around us. Hundreds of them. Thousands of them. With weary souls and troubled hearts. People yearning for satisfaction in life, but finding mostly disappointment. You can see it. You can always see it in their eyes. What do you say to people who have yet to discover fullness of life? You tell them the truth. Jesus Christ promised life, and He promised it in abundance. Moreover, He's done everything in His matchless power to fulfill the promise. On the cross, He purged the power of what ruins life, sin. On the cross, He paid the penalty of what ends life, death. In the resurrection, He opened the door to a new way to be human, fullness of life. In the combined work of the cross and the resurrection, He purified hearts and fitted them to be vessels of His life. It's a life overbrimming with love, power, truth, peace, goodness, righteousness, comfort, and joy. And it can be yours when you put your trust in Christ. When you give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of Him. When you venture your all on Him. And when we give our lives to Christ, He gives His life to us. 
Better yet, He gives us His life in us. When we become Christians, He fills us with Himself. That's, that's the mindset of the one who looks through the lens of the Gospel, who sees in all things Christ. How do you realize it? You, you listen when He calls. You trust and you pursue Him. You let Him establish you. And you believe that He saves. Not just for eternity, but even now. So next week, we're going to start looking at those practical realities. Again, how do we make decisions? How do we use our tongue? How do we use our finances? But we realize, we recognize that in all of those things, the source of wisdom, the source of life, the path to success begins with the acknowledgement, again, of Christ. Christ in us, the source of wisdom. So Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, we look forward to now going into some of these specific details. Thank You for Proverbs. Thank You for the practical guidance that it gives to us. But thank You that it doesn't, it doesn't begin with just a moral lesson. It doesn't begin with, with a, a list of do's and don'ts. It points us to You. Help us to see that, yes, wisdom a person. Wisdom has a name. Jesus is our all in all. Help us to look to the cross. Help us to look to the resurrection. Help us to look to His life and to follow Him when He calls and to submit to Him as He establishes us and to praise Him as daily we're experiencing His salvation. Lord, form us to be a people who have the wisdom of Christ. Thank you for him. Thank you for your word. Shape us according to them both. We pray that in his name. Amen.